0: So Chad is going to very kindly read from Exodus chapter 1,
1: and he's going to read all the way to Exodus 2, verse 10. It's a long one, but there aren't any difficult-to-pronounce names in there, Chad.
2: James thought you'd prefer to hear my voice instead of his, so uh, you're stuck with me. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter, with hard labor in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields, in all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Thanks, Chad.
0: So, good morning again, everyone. Uh, Welcome to... I feel like September things really ramp up for a lot of people. So welcome to anyone whose life is ramping up in September. Welcome to the teachers, we've got a few of those. Welcome to the students, we've got a few of those. I hope the shock hasn't been too brutal after a slightly gentler summer. Uh, Today, if you had not guessed, we are beginning our series on Exodus, which I'm calling Exodus A Way Out. Uh, Now you might be thinking, James, that's just a clever title. Where do you come up with these? Uh, and i will tell you it is not a clever title series series title at all uh, in greek the word for exodus literally means comes from the word road or way and ex which is where we get exit uh, so out of so hodos is road ex is ex uh, so exodus just means a road road out that's all it really means in hodos actually is the greek word for the road in because the greek word for in is in We're all learning, we're all language scholars today, Uh, but instead we are heading out. We are heading out of unhealthy ways of thinking, unhealthy ways of acting, out of unhealthy ideas of who God is. So let me give everyone a quick recap, uh, because it's probably worth thinking what we're heading out of. Some folks here will be very familiar with the book of Exodus and have read it many many times in many translations. Uh, some people here may have only read it once or twice. Some people here might not have read Exodus at all and that's okay. Some of us may only be familiar with the amazing movie The Prince of Egypt, the animated film that came out about 20 years ago, which takes a few liberties with the text. Uh, I don't know I don't want to call anyone here old, but some of y'all may be thinking of Charlton Heston saying, let my people, there we go, I got a smile from a reader who isn't old at all. Uh, so <laughs> Exodus is the second book of the Bible, but a whole lot of stuff happened in the first. Uh, so let me like run through that as quickly as I can. Yeah, I know, right, I've got like two minutes to talk about Genesis. So we hear about the creation of the world. We hear about God's love for creation and God's love for humanity. Uh, But then we hear about humans letting God down pretty quickly, sadly. Uh, We hear about the first murder. We hear about God being so heartbroken about the way that humanity is treating one another that he goes, you know what, we're going to hit the reset button. He tells Noah to build an ark because there's just no good people left. We're then told a little bit later that the people tried to build a tower to try and eclipse the glory of God, and God doesn't take too kindly to that and scatters the people. That's the first article in chapters. The next 39 are about the great fathers of our faith, the great things that they did, and also some of the not so great things they do. Uh, The Bible's quite explicit in the way that these people get stuff wrong. We first hear about Abraham, we hear about Abraham's promise with God and the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Usually covenants are fairly two-sided, but God does a lot of the heavy lifting. All Abraham has to do is say, God is my God. And We hear about how Abraham's descendants will be more numerous than stars in the sky. Uh, but we also hear about how he sold his wife as a sex slave twice. So, you know, some give and take there. Uh, we hear about the mistreatment of their own slave, Rahab, Uh, but how when no one else sees her, God does, that God gives her a name. We hear about Abraham's son, Isaac, and just how much Isaac meant to Abraham. And then we hear about Isaac's favorite son, Jacob, and we hear about how much damage playing favorites can do. Uh, When we have this mindset of there's only so much to go around, and I'm going to make sure only one person gets it, some pretty awful things can happen. Jacob learns very, very little from this, and we see that vicious cycle repeat itself with his own favorite son, Joseph. Uh, Some of you may know Joseph from the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, which again takes some liberties with the text. I'm proud to say that at age nine, I actually starred in a local production of Joseph, and yeah, that's right, that's right. Uh, I was one of the jealous brothers. Uh, Fairly typecast there, I think. And that story, both the Bible and the musical, ends with Joseph as the savior of Egypt. He warns the pharaoh about an upcoming famine, and as a result, they save up their grain so that they have enough for when that famine arrives. Uh, In a refrain that is kind of emblematic of Genesis, Exodus, Scripture, and our story, one of the last things we hear him say is, what you intended... To harm, the Lord intended it for good. The very last line of Genesis said, So Joseph died at the age of 110. And he was placed in a coffin in Egypt, which brings us to where we are. All right, so we all know Genesis now. I mentioned a lot of names there. I realize there's a lot of names to take in, and there's a lot of names in Exodus 2. What's really interesting about the book of Exodus is that this is the first time that God reveals God's name to anyone. Daniel Westacott is going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. I don't want to spoil it, but it's really interesting. And In the Hebrew Bible, this book isn't called A Road Out or Exodus. It's instead called Shemot, which literally translates as names, or, or these are the names. And one of the recurring themes about the book of Exodus is that the names that are given to God reveal who God is. They reveal what God is like. They reveal God as one who continuously provides a way out for people, one who sets people free, as one who takes what is intended for harm and instead turns it into good. So today, I wanted to talk a little bit about the two rulers that we see in the scripture that was read this morning, very well by Chad, thank you Chad. One is a leader with open hands, a leader who exemplifies generosity, one who shows us that there is always enough, and the other is a leader with closed fists one who exemplifies self-centeredness and scarcity and the dehumanization of others that can follow that. And in in case we hadn't worked it out, I'm talking about God and Pharaoh uh, in that order. With God, there is always enough. There is always more. And with Pharaoh, there is not enough to go around. Right at the start, we hear... Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, which is to say he's forgotten who Joseph was. He'd forgotten what Joseph and the Israelites had done for Egypt. A king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll
1: join our enemies, they'll fight against us, and they'll leave our country. There's too many of them. They're not from here. They're not like us. There's only so much to go around. They're violent. They'll hurt us. Does this sound at all familiar? Yeah, if this doesn't ring a bell, um,
0: it should. Because rhetoric against immigrants and foreigners hasn't really changed all that much in 3,000 years for the people that think that there isn't enough. These these words haven't really changed in millennia. There's only so much to go around, and if we don't hold onto it, if we don't grasp onto it, then they're going to grasp onto it, and then there won't be enough for us. It's interesting, because at this point, the Israelites aren't enslaved. They're just some folks living in a country and doing okay and having lots of children. And yet, even that is enough to be a threat. Pharaoh is driven by this false scarcity and a real racism, and so assigns taskmasters over them, forcing them to build, build storage cities at Python and Ramses. Now, if you are like me, uh, I mean, hopefully you're not, but maybe you are. Uh, you may have skipped over this verse. I've read this verse like as many times as I've read Exodus, which is a few times now, but I skipped over it because the idea of storing things, I think we think is good. We we think of storing up things for the winter. We all learn about. I don't know. Do you learn about the story about the the grasshopper and the the other animal, and one of them, the ant? Yeah, the ant. So the ant stores stuff, right, and the grasshopper chills out, and then the grasshopper dies from winter, which is a harsh lesson, I think. But we're kind of brought up on these fables that storing stuff for a rainy day is a good thing, and so we think, well, I mean, at least the pharaoh's thinking this stuff through. But that's not the point of that line. What it's trying to do is to highlight Pharaoh's scarcity mindset, that there isn't enough, that what we do have, we have to hold on to. We can't share it. There isn't enough to go around. We don't want to share. We definitely don't want to share with those foreigners.
1: They look different and they speak different. We don't want to share with them. We'll store it up, but it's only for us. We follow a God who loves to share, but Pharaoh is not
0: one who loves to share. And wonderfully, in one of these examples of what is being intended for harm God using for good, God's response to these people's oppression is for them to multiply and spread even more. But Pharaoh doesn't quite get the hint, and if you're familiar with Exodus, this is going to be a recurring theme for the next like three months. Pharaoh doesn't get the hint a lot. It's kind of his thing. But he is consistent. And Pharaoh responds to this multiplication and blessing by enslaving people. And that isn't even enough, and so the atrocity ramps up even more. And Pharaoh tells the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male babies. Uh, Anyone he thinks might grow up to fight against him or try to overthrow him. See how this story begins with fear that there might not be enough? And it very quickly ends into seeing these humans as having no worth at all.
1: Feeding that lie of scarcity and selfishness does not end well. Did she hear about babies being thrown in the Nile? <laughs> it's pretty traumatic,
0: actually. I mean, that's a reasonable response, show, <laughs> But that doesn't work either. Um, and I just I love this line. I I think this is one of the funniest lines in scripture. It's a, a pretty solid example of why men in charge shouldn't be making all the decisions about women's bodies. Because the midwives tell Pharaoh, like, yeah, we're really sorry. They just give birth really
1: quickly. Like, like, uh, is that your joke? It's a good joke, right? Okay. Uh, that for some
0: reason Pharaoh believes this. Like yeah, that that does sound believable that these women just give birth fast. <laughs> I won't bother to educate myself at all. I would dare say that Pharaoh has probably not been present for the miracle of childbirth. Uh, but I dare say anyone who has experienced that miracle themselves uh, could tell it's not a particularly quick process most of the time, shall we say? But despite Pharaoh's efforts to harm. We hear in verse 20 that the people multiplied and they grew strong. And finally Pharaoh has had enough. And every son that is born to the Hebrew should be thrown in the Nile. Now, what happens next is one of the most kind of beautiful examples of God creating a way out of using what was intended for harm instead using it for good. We hear of a boy being born and that his mother can no longer hide him, so she made a basket and placed him in the river. Which is, is kind of like a fun play on this as well, that every child is supposed to be thrown in the river, and that's exactly what she does. You know, she's, she's living by the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. Like, okay, so they're supposed to be placed in the Nile. That's where I'll place him. What's really fun about this, and this is what I learned this week that blew my mind, is the word that is translated in our Bibles as basket. Uh, That word is used 28 times in the Bible and 26 of those times it is referring to Noah's Ark.
1: It's not a basket,
0: it's an ark. 28 times
1: in total, 26
0: is Noah's Ark and the other two times are here. You see what is happening? Do you see what we are being reminded of in this text? that God provides safety in the wake of calamity. Moses isn't put in a basket, he's put in an ark. And he's found by Pharaoh's daughter, and then his mother ends up being paid
1: to feed him. Again, It's just this wonderful inversion of what Pharaoh wants to happen.
0: A wonderful example of God using what was intended for harm, for good. The opening chapters here set a scene for the rest of our story, which is going to be the next few months. A scene of a pharaoh who is scared of losing what he has, who doesn't think that there is enough, and will cling so tightly
1: to what he has that it ends up
0: suffocating everything in his grasp.
1: He represents, he is a
0: king whose needs can never be truly fulfilled. But these chapters also tell us of a God, our God, who can create beauty and wonder out of horror and catastrophe, of a God who shows that there is always enough, a God who is willing to give us a way out. And instead of Pharaoh, who's constantly thinking about the things that he needs and the more that he needs, we have a God who needs nothing. This, this, I realize this is a weird thing to say, that God needs nothing or God has no needs. Uh, it kind of struck me as odd, but I was reading about it this week. and um, The theologian was saying that because God doesn't need or require anything, God just can't act selfishly. God can't act out of self-interest. Because God's only motivation is the love that he has for his creation. And we see that play out again,
1: and again, and again. When you don't need anything, you can really love well. Our God can't be a God of scarcity because God doesn't need anything. But God's desire is to share and to love us. And I think it's hard for us to
0: conceive of this, because uh, our, our world is kind of stuck in a scarcity mindset, right? We're told that there isn't enough. When, when it's just untrue, like, we don't have a resource problem. We just have a sharing problem. There's billions of hungry people, but a third of the world's food is thrown away. <laughs> there is enough. We're just not good at
1: sharing. We've built up those bigger storehouses. We've
0: held on to things too tightly. It's... We have people that have enough wealth to, to you know, provide for the next 100 generations or something. We don't have a resource problem, we have a sharing problem. So, so at Wellspring, <laughs> I really want us to focus on what we do have, because uh, we've had a rough
1: couple of years. I'm not going to deny that, uh, it is, yeah, let's let's not even pretend. But let's focus on
0: what we do have. Doesn't mean that things have to be easy, but I can tell you, I'm really excited by what God is doing here. I'm excited that we have this space and that this space is being used more and more for ministries that connect with this community that help us love our neighbor better. And even without the space, the people that we have, like, is Kevin in the service today? All right, let's let's embarrass him, man. Like, y'all know Kevin, right? Like, the most pastoral custodian in the world. Like, like loves people and loves being here and, and, and gets it so well. And and people keep on phoning him up to offer him other jobs, and, and he stays because because he loves being here too and because of, of how much he values this space and gets it. And I'm I embarrassed, Caitlin, you're at the back there, but people turn around like, Like, Caitlin does so much here. Also, like, so you're the program director, but she also leads worship. Like, that's an obscene combination of giftings. The fact that God has given us these people, that even with the few of us that there are, there's so much that we can do. And our elders here have decades of combined teaching experience and working alongside the marginalized doing the work of justice, doing God's work. We Like, yo, we have more, like, babies and children in the the service than we've had for a real long time. We have such wonderfully gifted teachers leading them. Like, yeah, we have multiple worship leaders. Like, there aren't that many of us, and yet we have a bunch of people that can lead worship who give their time and give their giftings. And we have the folks who sit at the back and, you know, You wouldn't be able to hear me without them, so we can appreciate them too. Like, we have people who are over 100 that love being a part of the Wellspring community. We have people who might be checking us out for the first time. And, and you know, we have a board who, who partially because of me, I'm not going to lie, has endured a whole lot in the last three years. but honors each other and loves one another and wants to give and wants to give and I just see that all the way through. That I think I think so many of you are doing better than you realize. That that you're opening your hands well and and just keep doing that. There's there's a ton of people I should I I, I don't know. This isn't supposed to be a thanking speech. It's just to recognize. The compassion and the efforts and the energy and the giftings that
1: that looking around I'm so thankful for i want I, I want to finish today actually um, with with what are called the posture prayers. Um, So, all of these prayers are done, uh, they're
0: actually, they were put together by my friend Danielle, who's going to be speaking with us next week, which we're excited by. Um, So, I'm going to ask you all to stand, and all of these prayers are done with our hands open, and and there's a reason for that. So, I'm going to say the line, and then I'm going to ask you to repeat the line, because that's a good thing to do.
1: So, first of all, I choose to hold up my hands as a symbol of surrender. My life is not about me. I surrender to your lordship. I surrender my preferences, prejudices, and position to you. <laughs> I think you guys got that <laughs> My fears, finances, friends, and family to you. And then we're going to out, hold out our hands as a symbol of generosity. And we say, what I have is not mine. I am only a steward of all you have given me. I want to live an open-handed life in a closed-fist culture. And then hold our hands forward as a symbol of mission. I want to live for something greater than me. I want to embrace your kingdom mission. I want to embrace and welcome your mission to the lost. The poor, the powerless the privileged, and the persecuted. (laughs) Amen. Well done, guys. You did so well.